Hello everyone. I'm going to share more about the rest of the criminalistic part of my youth. This is pre-19th century, but it relates to my boyhood. Today, crime is sometimes thought of as an urban phenomenon. But for most of human history, it was the rural interfaces that encountered the majority of crimes, bearing in mind the fact that for most of human history, rural areas were the first majority of inhabited places. I'm going to say this on public record. I may have said it before, but it must be said again. I remember when the rapper Nas talked about how the drugs kept the hood from starving. I take it a step further. The drugs in terms of millions of dollars were being proliferated in the suburbs, the inner city, the country, and even areas where the Amish were. The outskirts of town in the middle of nowhere. Drugs were that quote-unquote lucrative to people regardless of locale. Organized crime is literally everywhere not just in the hood. It's also in some aspects of corporate America, some aspects of Ivy League institutions, some aspects of the intelligence community, some aspects of federal law enforcement, and some aspects of the federal government. And organized crime is in each and every industry. Let us continue. For the most part, within a village, members kept crime at very low rates. Well, for in my case, it wasn't just villages. Because there were... Because with criminals... They don't commit a lot of crime in some places because some places are that well secured by law enforcement. And a place where they commit a lot of crimes is because law enforcement doesn't have a heavy presence there. So some criminals pick and choose where they do their crimes. Some will do it in areas where... Because the people are so pleasant... They don't, they're not big on going into areas where you gonna mess with people that don't bother anybody. Some criminals will mess with them, but the ones I was around, they only bothered people that they already had an active feud with. If you didn't really bother anybody, you're pretty much left alone. 
criminals would be cordial with you, would act nice towards you. Notice I said act. Get me wrong, there's a handful of criminals that even if it didn't bother them, they would still bother you. But for the most part, that wasn't the thing to do. And if it was found out that a criminal bothered people that didn't bother them, they would get robbed or beaten or killed or all three simultaneously. Then it says, however, outsiders such as pirates, highwaymen, and bandits attack trade routes and roads at times severely disrupting commerce, raising costs, insurance rates, and prices to the consumer. Now, that did happen sometime in my own upbringing. It didn't happen often, but it happened in sprinkles. Every now and then you would see it and hear it for yourself. Um, don't get me wrong, there's also highway women. Highway women are female robbers who steal from travelers. And they often dress as men. Now, that is not the same thing as cross-dressing if you're queer, okay? We, we will not conflate homosexuality, criminality. They have nothing to do with each other. Those are irreconcilable concepts. And we will not conflate transvestism with illegality. No, again, they're irreconcilable concepts. So, what what has to be said is this. Most people who cross-dress, that's truly who they are. And it's beautiful. When it comes to the highway men and the highway women, the way they do it, it's all about fooling people to, to commit thievery. Okay? So let's not conflate highway men, highway women with the LGBTQ plus community. No, 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 no. A highwayman is a robber who steals from travelers. I saw that sometimes. This type of thief usually traveled and robbed by horse as compared to a footpad who traveled and robbed on foot. Mounted highwaymen were widely considered to be socially superior to footpads. Well, you know that's all true because it's modern. They would usually... Even though I did see and hear some of that for myself, a lot of times they were highway men who traveled and robbed by cars and bikes. And yes, there were footpads who traveled and robbed on foot. That that still happened to me. Um, in terms of me witnessing it happening to other people. And, um, now I have a better understanding what I was forced to witness growing up.
So, what is a bandit? Um, banditry is a type of organized crime committed by outlaws, typically involving the threat or use of violence. So, there were women bandits and men bandits. So, when the women took over, it's mostly women bandits. When the men were running it, it was mostly men bandits. And originally, there were more highway men than highway women. Then it reversed and became more highway women than highway men. So, a, a person who engages in banditry is known as a bandit and primarily commits crimes such as extortion, robbery, and murder, either as an individual or in groups. So, the, the, there were more women banditry groups and women banditry individuals than men banditry groups and men banditry individuals. The reverse used to happen originally when it was more men banditry in groups and individuals than women in groups and individuals in terms of banditry. There's more. Banditry is a vague concept of criminality and its modern usage can be synonymous for gangsterism. There is more women gangsterism than men gangsterism, even though it used to be the vice versa. There is more women brigandage. There's more women brigandage than men brigandage, even though the vice versa used to be true originally. There's more women marauding than men marauding, even though the reverse used to be true. There was more women terrorism than men terrorism, even though the reverse used to be true. There's more women piracy than men piracy, even though the reverse used to be true. There's more women thievery than men thievery, even though the reverse used to be true. And there were more women outlaws than men outlaws, even though the reverse used to be true. So I witnessed all these things. And let's look up pirates. So, piracy is an act of robbery or criminal violence by ship or boat-borne attackers upon another ship or a coastal area, typically with the goal of stealing cargo and other valuable goods. Those who conduct acts of piracy are called pirates' vessels. Vessels used for piracy or pirate ships. So, there were more women pirate ships than men pirate ships, even though the reverse used to be true. And there were more women pirates than men pirates, even though the reverse used to be true. Let's continue. According to criminologist Penn Lund, piracy and banditry were to the pre-industrial world, organized crimes to modern society. Hmm. That's an interesting perspective. Um, because... What uh, many of the crimes that happen in pre-industrial world still happens. Like I'm pretty sure banditry and piracy still happen. It's just not as talked about. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen a lot. It depends on the region. Some crimes are least talked about. Some crimes most talked about. Some crimes are medium talked about. Then it says, if we take a global rather than a strictly domestic view, it becomes evident that even crime of the organized kind has a long, if not a necessarily noble heritage. Yeah, there's no nobility to crime. And crime 
in terms of the concept of heritage should never go together. The word thug dates back to early 13th century India when thugs or gangs of criminals roamed from town to town, looting and pillaging. Now, when I was in the organized crime world, I call it the disorganized crime world. There's no true organization to evilness. There were more women thugs than men thugs, even though the reverse used to be true. There are more women gangs of criminals than men gangs of criminals, even though the verse used to be true. There are more women roaming from town to town, looting and pillaging than the men, even though the reverse used to be true. Smuggling and drug trafficking rings are as old as the hills in Asia and Africa, and extant criminal organizations in Italy and Japan traced histories back several centuries. Well... Well, from what I do know, from what I do remember is that there are more women smuggling and women drug trafficking than men smuggling and men drug trafficking, even though the reverse used to be true. It says, as Lund states, barbarian conquerors, whether Vandals, Goths, the Norse, Tucks, or Mongols, are not, nece- are not normally thought of as organized crime groups, yet they share many features associated with thriving criminal organizations. By the way, it's a warped sense of thriving, by the way. And yes, there were more women conquerors than men conquerors in organized crime, even though the reverse used to be true. Then it says, they were, for the most part, non-ideological, predominantly ethically based, used violence and intimidation, and adhered to known codes of law. Honestly, I slightly disagree because violence is its own ideology, and there... is the understanding that criminals view lawlessness as their own rule keeping. That they feel like attacks lawfulness. So when we talk about being ethnically based, he didn't say it was ethically based. He said it was ethnically based. And street codes are no codes to live by. They help no one. They hurt everyone. So there are more women using violence and intimidation adhering to their own codes of law than the men, even though the reverse used to be true. Talking about my upbringing. In ancient Rome, there was an infamous outlaw called Bula Felix who organized led a gang of up to 600 bandits. That's just a side note here. Terrorism is linked to organized crime, and that is very, very true. But as political aims rather than solely financial ones, so there's overlap but separation of terrorism and organized crime. Which I do agree with on this one because organized crime is the politics, which is centered around world domination attempts of law, commerce, and actual politics. And the terrorism is the beating, the robbing, and the killing. 
and even at times sex crimes. I'm just telling you about my upbringing. Then there's more. A fence or receiver was a was a merchant who bought and sold stolen goods. Now, I'll tell you this. There are more women fences and women receivers than men fences and men receivers, even though the reverse used to be true. Let us continue. Fences were part of the extensive network of accomplices in the criminal underground of Ming and Qing, China. Well, it wasn't just in China because in my upbringing, I knew women and men who loved to just take without asking. And they didn't care who got hurt in the process. So I would dare say that fences were part of the extensive network of accomplices in the criminal underground of D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, the DMV in my case. Let us continue. Their occupation entailed criminal activity, just like the men and women of the D, some of the men and some of the women of the DMV, the women more than the men, even though the reverse used to be true. But as fences often act as liaisons between the more respectable community to the underground criminals, they were seen as living a precarious existence on the fringes of respectable society. Well, respectable society community means um, law-abiding, decent people, which are most people in the world. And a lot of times, those in the respectable community don't know that they're being played for a fool or played for a sucker, as criminalistic language goes. So sometimes you don't know who's trans who's transferable in terms of the accumulation of evil and the activation of wickedness. Sometimes you don't know who's trying to play the game of telephone on you. And that even happens to the lovely people of our global society. I'm just telling you more about my childhood. It says, A fence worked alongside bandits, but in a different line of work. Um, That was true for my upbringing. More women than men added, even though the reverse used to be true. Let us continue. The network of criminal accomplices that was often acquired was essential to ensuring both the safety and the success of fences. Now, that was sadly true for my own upbringing. The path into the occupation of a fence steamed in a large degree from necessity. As most fences came from the ranks of poorer people, they often took whatever work they could, both legal and illegal. Sadly, that's true for my upbringing. Like most bandits operated within their own community, fences also work within their own town or village. Sadly, that was true for my own upbringing. For example, in some satellite areas of the capital, military troops lived within or close to the commoner population. They had the opportunity to hold illegal trades with commoners. I saw that 
a handful of times when it came to my own upbringing. And I also remember that they would do positive things to hide the negativity of crime. So can you really call it true positivity? I can't. If you use positivity for negativity, it's just negative. But they would, you know, run errands or for people. They run errands for people or babysit kids or they would help you know, those with disabilities and elderly people across the street and, you know, they would volunteer and do internships and um, help out at homeless shelters and feed the hungry, clothe the naked. They would do these criminals would do all these things to blend in just to hide their dirt. So... That's what I saw in my own upbringing. In areas like Baoding and Haitian, local peasants and community members not only purchased military livestock, such as horses and cattle, but also helped hide the stolen livestock from military alert by the prophets. Hmm. You know, that makes me think about my own upbringing where um, even animals can be used to be a part of the organized crime hot mess. And from what I remember, when it came to organized crime figures from outside of America, I did see a lot of that. It could be from Asian countries, African countries, Middle Eastern countries. I would see exactly that. What I just read to you. Let us continue. Local peasants and community members became fences and they hid criminal activities from officials in return for products and money from these soldiers. When it came to organized crime figures outside of America, I did see that sometimes. What I just read to you as well. Okay, let us. Let us keep going. Um, Types of fences. Most fences were not individuals who only bought and sold stolen goods to make a living. Which at times were true and other times that was one of their ways they made a quote unquote living not a real living that was one of their illegal sources of income it goes on to say 
The majority of fences had other occupations within the quote-unquote polite society held a variety of official occupations. So there's more for me to mention. As I left off, it says most fences were not individuals only bought and sold stolen goods to to make a living. What that means for me is that some people's as most death now the rapper Yasin Bey would say some still for sport and more still to eat. That's very true. That is a tragic truth though. Then it says the majority of fences had other occupations within the quote-unquote polite society and held a variety of official occupations. right now because that's exactly what I saw in childhood. These occupations included laborers, coolies, and peddlers. That's what I saw, but I also saw more. I saw people doing office work. Um, people being bus attendants, flight attendants, and People being bus drivers, pilots. I saw that. Then it says such individuals often encounter criminals in markets in their line of work and recognizing a potential avenue for an extra source of income formed acquaintances and temporary associations for mutual aid and protection with criminals. That's exactly what I saw growing up. Some of the associations were permanent and some were up and down. Sometimes we associate, sometimes we don't. It says, in one example, an owner of a tea house overheard a conversation between Ding Yawin, a criminal that was planning a robbery, offered to help to sell the loot for an exchange of spoils. That does happen. And what I saw was robbery planning and selling loot for an exchange of women. Men, children, jewelry, more money, cash, um, and early Christmas gift presents, gift cards. That's what I remember seeing. It says, at times the robbers themselves filled the role of fences. Selling to people they met on the road, that does happen. My experience was more of like a drive-through, driving up on people. It's basically a street yard sale in the form of vehicles. 
This may actually have been preferable for robbers in certain circumstances because they would not have to pay the fencing portion of the spoils. I saw that, but it wasn't just spoils to pay the fence a portion of the men, the women, and the children, and the other things I said that they were exchanged with each other. Then it says, Butchers were also prime receivers for stolen animals because of the simple fact that owners could no longer recognize their livestock once butchers slaughtered them. Hmm. In the crime world, that does happen. But I would see that kind of stuff when it came to international criminals. American criminals, it wasn't their thing to do these things. Animals are very valuable commodities within Ming China, and a robber could potentially sustain a living from stealing livestock and selling the butcher fences. Again, I only saw those things when it came to international criminals. And again, the American criminals were into doing those type of things. Then it says, although the vast majority of the time, fences work with physical stolen property. Now that's very true. That's exactly where I remember. Fences also work as itinerant barbers also sold information as a good. Now, the fences... Very few were barbers, my experience. Most were... Waiters, waitresses, uh, bartenders. They tend to do hospitality industry jobs even though criminals have a heart of inhospitality. Yes, I, I, I understand the irony, the hypocrisy, the whole nine yards. But they also, defenses that I was around did sell information as a good. They did. It says itinerant barbers often amassed important sources of information news as they travel and sold significant pieces of information often to criminals in search of places to hide or individuals to rob. That's what I saw, but it mostly wasn't the barbers doing that. It was those in the hospitality industry who were criminals doing those type of things. In this way, itinerant barbers also served the role as a keeper of information that could be sold to both members of the criminal underground as well as powerful clients and performing the function of a spy. Again, that's what I saw, but again, it mostly wasn't the barbers. It was the hospitality industry, legal working, criminals of illegality, doing all those things. Fences not only sold items such as jewelry and clothing, but was also involved in trafficking hostages that bandits had kidnapped. I did see that in the sexual slavery world. Women and children were the easiest and among the most common quote-unquote objects of its assault. Now, that's true. In the sexual slave world I was a part of, I was one of those kids. And I was tortured along with the women. And it says, most of the female hostages were sold to fences and then sold as prostitutes, wives, or concubines. That's exactly what I saw. And it gets worse. I was 
a child prostitute because of them. I was a child husband because of them. And I was a child concubine because of them. I was a child paramour because of them. I was a child side piece because of them. I was a child lover in quotations because of them. Them meaning defenses who were in the sexual slavery world. It says, One example of human trafficking can be seen from Shin Akui's gang who abducted a servant girl and sold her to Lin Biao Miao, who in, who in turn sold her for 30 parts of silver as wives. I used to see females, girls and women, being sold for gold and silver and gemstones. And when it came to me... Um, I was considered the most expensive. I was their favorite victim. So they had to pay a fortune of like 200 parts of gold and silver to get me. And they it took them some time to pay it, like a few days. So... That's what I remember. I was a child sex slave. So. There were other boys who were. Prostitutes and husbands and concubines and sex slaves and lovers and paramours in the minds of the fences of the sexual slavery world. There are also men prostitutes, men husbands, men concubines, men sex slaves, and men lovers and men paramours in that world. And yes, there were women who were prostitutes, wives, concubines, sex slaves, mistresses, and lovers of defenses of the sexual slavery world and these are all involuntarily by the way these are all forced because it was all forced upon us it says in contrast to women who require beauty to sell for a high price children are sold regardless of their physical appearance or family background that I did experience against my will and that I saw and that I saw <clears throat> but I was the high again I was the highest price kid because I made them the most money because I had the most adult customers out of everybody else. And the adult customers were the pedophiles committing pedophilia 
and pederasty against me. It was men and women who were the adult customers. And then it says, children were often sold as servants or entertainers, while young girls were often sold as prostitutes. I remember that. In my case, I was forced to be a servant. I was forced to be an entertainer. And I was forced to be a prostitute. I did what they told me to do. I would sing, dance, and tell jokes. And that would excite the adult customers. And they would rate me. And get paid for it. And they had me be like their waiter. Because sometimes they had adult customers who wanted to eat. And I had to take their order. And they would have slaves. You know, people cooking for them. Like chefs. And they forced people to be bartenders. And so I go to these um, adult customers. And then it says, network of of connections. Like merchants of honest goods, one of the most significant tools of offense was their network of, of connections. That is a tragic truth from what I remember in my own life. As they were the middlemen between robbers and clients, that's actually a thing. I saw it. Fences needed to form, excuse me, and maintain connections in both the quote-unquote polite society as well as among criminals. I saw that all the time. The middlemen weren't just men, they were women too. However, there were a few exceptions in which members of the so-called, quote-unquote, well-respected society became receivers and harbors. Oh, yeah. There were people who blended in with law-abiding society and apparent, but behind the scenes, they was committing every felony and misdemeanor that you could think of. And they were co-conspirators. They would cover up perpetrating behavior and predatory conduct. It was predatory misconduct and perpetrating misbehavior. helped bandits to sell the stolen goods but also acted as agents of bandits to collect protection money from local merchants and residents that is a thing that did happen in my life these quote unquote part time fences with high social status used their connection with bandits to help themselves gain social capital as well as wealth that did happen and I take it a step further. 
Sometimes defenses were full time. And sometimes defenses were every now and then time. That too. Then it says, It was extremely important to their occupation that fences maintained a positive relationship, in quotations, with their customers, especially Richard Gentry clients. That I saw. When some members of the local elites join the ranks of fences, they not only protect bandits to protect their business interests, they actively took down any potential threats of their illegal profiting, even government officials. That I saw. In the Zhejiang province, the local elites not only got the provincial commissioner, Zhu Wan, dismissed from his office, but also eventually drove him to suicide. Well, from what I from what I remember, it wasn't just suicide. It was you drank yourself to death, you drug yourself to death, you smoke your tobacco to to your own death. Um, you they were so depressed that they did not even take their prescribed HIV and AIDS medications and they just allowed themselves to die and some were just forced out of not just their line of work but also organized crime too Constantly on the run, constantly on the go, away from people that were after them. It says, this was possible because fences only often had legal means of making a living as well as illegal activities and could threaten to turn in bandits to the authorities. Oh, I did witness that quite a bit. Then it says, it was also essential for them to maintain a relationship with bandits. I saw it. And trust me, it's a toxic relationship. There's no such thing as a positive relationship. We're talking about organized crime. However, it was just as true that bandits needed fences to make a living and quotations needed. It was actually codependency, but yes, I did see that. As a result, fences often held dominance in their relationship with bandits and fences could exploit their position, cheating the bandits by manipulating the prices they paid bandits for the stolen property. I saw that too. And I'm not just saying I saw that to make it look like I'm not thinking for myself. I actually did. If I didn't see something, I'll tell you I didn't. I'm honest. And it says safe houses. Aside from simply buying and selling stolen goods, fences often played additional roles in the criminal underground of early China. Not just China. It happens even in America. It happened, you know, some kids see it and some adults see it. 
I was not forced upon reality. One of them, actually. Then it says, Because of the high-floating population in public places, such as inns and tea houses, they often became ideal places for bandies and gangs to gather to exchange information and plan for the next crime. Now, that is very true. Um, I told you in the previous episodes how there were, in terms of criminalistic entrepreneurship, that episode, listen to that for further reference. But I told you how there were women who owned inns and tea houses and made them Sin City inns and Sin City tea houses. You're learning more of what I mean now. But yes, all those things did happen. And then it says, Harbors. People who provided safe houses for criminals often played the role of receiving stolen goods from their harbor criminals to sell to other customers. I saw it. Then it says, Safe houses included inns, tea houses, brothels, opium dens as well as gambling parlors and employees or owners of such institutions often functioned as harbors as well as fences. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I saw. I saw these things internationally in terms of crime because of the organized crime figures outside of America. And they were usually Asian criminals. Hispanic criminals, indigenous criminals, black African criminals, and even Middle Eastern criminals, European criminals. These safe houses located in places where they're high-floating population being from all kinds of social backgrounds. Yes, I knew I knew of criminals who were from all the seven continents and all the islands. Like I said, organized crime is literally everywhere. Brothels themselves helped these bandits to hide and sell stolen goods because of the special Ming law that exempted brothels from being held responsible for the criminal actions of their clients. For the criminal actions of their clients. One more time. Brothels themselves helped these bandits to hide and sell stolen goods because of the special Ming law that exempted brothels from being held responsible for the criminal actions of their clients. What I did see (laughs) Hey, you know, I just coughed a little bit, but Sometimes it happens when 
you podcast. It's all good. Let me get back. So what I did see growing up was, yes, the brothels that I was in, they did help the bandits to hide and sell stolen goods. Not because of any law of the land, but because criminals like the criminal behavior of other criminals. And DC law, there's no brothels exemption because most places in America forbid brothel work. Um, So in D.C., um, the D.C. brothels, when I remember, they made it clear that don't expect us to testify for you if you get busted by the police unless we really like you. And they didn't like a lot of people. So most people that got in trouble, they had to take the fall for their own behavior. The very few they liked, they would testify to make sure that you weren't given a lengthy prosecution. And it says, even though the government required owners of these places to report any suspicious activities. Lack of enforcement from the government itself and some of the owners being fences for the bandits made an ideal safe house um, for bandits and gangs. I saw that, however, federal government America um, because the federal government is big on locking up anybody who breaks their laws. Um, the brothel owners were into you have to report suspicious activities. in order to protect our brothels. And that's what happened. That way they could pretend that their environment wasn't a brothel and that they were being picked on. It was a way to shield their crimes so their crimes wouldn't have any earthly exposure whatsoever. Pawn shops are also often affiliated with fencing stolen goods. Now, that's what I saw. The owners or employees of such shops often pay cash for stolen goods at a price a great deal below market value to bandits, for often desperate for money and resold the goods to earn a profit. I saw all of those things.
Punishment for fences. Two different Ming laws, the Da Ming Law and the Dao Go, drafted by the Hangu Emperor Zhu Yuanzang, Yuanzang, sentenced fences with different penalties based on the categories and prices of the products that were stolen. Now, they don't talk a lot about fences barely in America, but when I remember, they got the harshest sentences. Sometimes close to life in prison without possibility of parole, or sometimes no parole because of the level of their thievery was that high. And then it says in coastal regions, illegal trading of foreigners as well as smuggling became a huge concern for the government during the middle to late Ming era. So, I witnessed illegal trading with foreigners. And like I told you in previous episodes, I witnessed people smuggling, human smuggling. And those are becoming more concerns for governments around the world because of the rampant xenophobia and more concern about foreign trading and foreign trade policies. You see that more and more in the news. Especially in light of reports of NATO and international allies. You understand now. In order to prohibit this crime, the government passed a law in which illegal smugglers who traded with foreigners without the consent of the government will be punished with exile to the border for military service. Wow. Um, honestly, how that makes me feel is that even the far right would fight over that because the far right loves to exile people. But I don't think they would feel comfortable having um, foreigners in the military service. Not even at the border. They don't want anybody at the border. In areas where military troops were stationed, stealing and selling military property would result in a more severe punishment. The military is understood never to double cross them or they'll go out of your way to make your life a living hell. This is in the Jaya Ping time, a case was recorded of stealing and selling military horses. 
The emperor himself gave direction that the thieves who stole the horses and the people who helped to sell the horses would be put on Kangu and sent to labor in a border military camp. Mm. And in these military camps at the border, the harshest boot camps um, and the and the and the and the severest and the severest drill sergeants it took me a while to say it because It makes me that emotional. Then it says, In the salt mines, the penalty for workers who stole salt and people sold the stolen salt was the most severe. Anyone who was arrested and found guilty of stealing and selling government salt was put to death. That's how it was back then. Um... And you want to know my experience. Basically, what happened to the illegal smugglers who traded foreigners? Um, death penalty of the streets or law enforcement even break their own rules because they would they would have opposed the death penalty but they loophole just to death penalty a person. You know, that they're the law so they can break their own rules just to get at somebody the way they liked. And they were sent to boot camp and drill sergeants. They were sent to prisons, to psych wards too. And they weren't allowed to be at the border or not even the military service, they would send you to like charm school or life skills classes they would have you take sometimes they're victims of violence victims of robberies victims of kidnapping even victims of murder and um, anybody who would steal anything an animal the condiment, any item or belonging, a violent rampage was certainly going to come your way, which indeed, in fact, happened. Nineteenth century. During the Victorian era, criminals and gangs started to form organizations which would collectively become London's criminal underworld. Like when I was growing up, during the late 1990s, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, criminals slash gangs started to form organizations which would collectively become the DMV's criminal underworld. That's what happened to me. Criminal societies in the underworld started to develop their own ranks and groups, which are sometimes called families, but were often made up of lower classes and operated on pickpocketry, 
prostitution, forgery, and counterfeiting, commercial burglary, and even money laundering schemes, which I did see often in the DMV criminal underworld. All these things. Unique also were the use of slang and arguments used by Victorian criminal society to distinguish each other like those propagated by street gangs like the Pinky Blinders. Well, for those that don't know what uh, arguments mean, the jargon or slang of a particular group or class. Well, that happens and even in the DMV. It's more street slang, though. You know. But they don't call themselves gangs. They just call themselves crews. But all crime crews are gangs to me. This is what happened to me in the DMV. And it says, DMV, DC, Virginia. One of the most infamous crime bosses in the Victorian underworld was Adam Worth, who was nicknamed the Napoleon of the Criminal Underworld, or the Napoleon of Crime, and became the inspiration behind the popular character Professor Mori, Mori, Moriarty. Now, in that world, in the DC underworld, I recognize that there are so many crews in DC that there wasn't a person as infamous as Wayne Perry. Because they were all held, for the most part, as center of high amounts of fear. But it was pretty much equal. Now, between me and the sex workers... The big reason why I was feared because the sex workers were the most feared. I was violent when appropriate. Sex workers were just violent no matter what. People thought I was murderous because I was with the criminal sympathizers and the bodyguard killers. I never killed anybody. I never arranged any crime to happen to anybody. The sex workers, sometimes they put hits out on people. Sometimes they would order violence and robberies to happen to other people. Ordering people to get jumped and stuck for their paper. Some of the sex workers, not all of them, of course. Organized crime in the United States first came to prominence in the Old West. 
and historians such as Brian J. Robb and Aaron H. Turner trace the first organized crime syndicates to the Koshice Cowboy Gang and the Wild Bunch. When I'm doing these podcast episodes is giving people all the raw, rugged, and real of the organized crime world and adding more history to it. Because you're hearing it happen to a five-year-old child. The Cotchise Cowboys, though loosely organized, were unique for their criminal operations in the Mexican border, in which they would steal and sell cattle as well as smuggle contraband goods in between the countries. Oh. Sometimes the drug cartels of Mexico did something like that. But it was more than just animals. It was more it was more of steal and sell people just to get the goods. And sometimes the goods weren't items, sometimes the goods were people, trafficking victims. And it says, in the Old West, there were other examples of gangs that operated in ways similar to organized crime syndicates, such as the Innocence Gang, the Jim Miller Gang, the Soapy Smith Gang, the Bell Star Gang, and the Bob Doisier Gang. Well, I can tell you this. The street crews did exactly that. I'll tell you off the top of my head. Um, I just remember um, sometimes when I was calling the phone, the pay phone, to protect women from sexual harassment, I would call 911. I remember something I said along the lines of speed it up, motherfuckers. I want my goddamn justice. And um, I said that one time, and I remember the ambulance people were shocked at my language, but they didn't know that it was a kid saying those things. They thought it was a woman because I spoke in my regular five-year-old voice. And I said, usually I don't talk like this, but I've been motherfucking raped. I remember saying that. And so I cursed less and less over time on the phone because I, I recognized that the women that were watching me talk on the phone were startled. So I apologize. You know, I was like, I was apologizing. You know, they thought I was talking to bystanders. And um, it was actually the women I was calling on behalf of, they never knew. 
And then I remember, you know, another time talking to the guy who told me that, you know, cancer was um, the guy I told you about when he had cancer and he was one of those, the guy's mom had cancer. He was one of those guys that would come up to me to keep himself from being murdered. I remember saying to him, ain't no motherfucking problem. Like, no motherfucking problem at all. Um, when it came to him expressing relief to me that his life is spared. It's that fucked up, I know. And then I remember... I was in that world where... I didn't bother people for the most part. I only bothered people that bothered other people. And the streets were cool with it. They started protecting women because they saw me protect women. I encouraged them to do it. They would protect other abuse survivors because they would see me do that all the time. And um, in the streets, I was only violent when somebody was picking on me or other people in the crime world were picking on innocent people. Other than that, I was the cool cat that didn't bother anybody. And that's what made me highly respected in the streets from a warp standpoint, of course. And I do remember um, one of my nicknames was Bloody Knuckles. And they used to call me Flashlight Goggles. Bloody Knuckles because beat got, you know, beat. Um, I would beat down misogynistic guys and guys who were trying to pick on other dudes down to a bloody pulp. And it's called me flashlight goggles because of my big eyes that would stare right seeing through you. Um, and that's what happened to, to me in that world. And then I remember um, just acknowledging, you know, when it came to that world that um, I was a physically imposing kid, even though I was three feet, five inches at the time. Um, that's why a lot of times criminals didn't make eye contact with me when they spoke to me because I could hold eye contact for extremely long periods of time. I would win staring contests in the crime world and after a while people stopped challenging me to staring contests. They would try to have mean mugging, glaring contests with me and I would easily win. So after a while, they stopped trying to stare me down because I would automatically win. And, um, you know, I remember there were times where I would give the middle finger to dudes that would clown me for being a chivalrous gentleman. And then I remember um, kicking the head of the side of people who, who were male massages who would defend women being mistreated. Sometimes they used the Bible to do it. And I remember busting them ahead with, a, with, with vases. Um, I remember one time being in one, you know, their homes and I would, sh- I took my gun and sh- I took the gun and shot their um, artwork down to prove to them, I can use this weapon but I'm not a killer. But don't think you're not going to disrespect women. I remember that happening. 
And uh, I'm not glorifying any of this. I'm just telling you the last set of things that happened in that world. Because after I end this episode, all the organized crime stories of my life will have been told. So, um, last thing I want to say about that world is, to you know, the fences, the bandits, and the outlaws who did of all of what they did. Um majority of them were killed by the criminal sympathizers and the bodyguard killers and the rest are rotting in prison so um the bodyguard killers and the criminal sympathizers the majority of them were black indigenous people of color the rest were white a sprinkle of Asian and some were Hispanics Latinos, Latinas, um, and a very few Middle Easterners, and a couple of Native Americans, actually. So, and indigenous folks, um, some of them. So, um, that's all that happened to me in the organized crime world. And to make it light, because I know this episode was rough, um, I want to talk about nude celebrity media right so I'm going to be doing um, (laughs) ethical film screenshots because my nude my fully nude scenes and my partially nude scenes and not, it will be all um, artful and non-pornographic mainstream films, which will be artful in and of itself. Um, I'll be doing paparazzi photographs, uh, celebrities, which are photographed and building real-life situations. I'll have the type of relationship with the paparazzi where, because I'm a nudist, I mean, I don't mind them filming me being topless or half naked at a beach yacht or by a pool. Nipple slips for me are cool because I'm just that revealing about my body anyway. And um, even if they accidentally show genitalia, I'll just turn it into like comedy, comedy skits because sometimes it just happens, you know. I won't be mortified because I'm that comfortable being human and um, me and the paparazzi will be just fine because sometimes like for me if that happens I'm already in on it like hey you know we might take these photos, photos might get out there and that's cool I will photograph myself being fully nude and healthily because the way I'll do the paparazzi photographs is okay we're in on it okay sometimes they take photos but they won't be stalking me or anything but there are times where I you know call paparazzi hey you can I'm, I'm, I'm going to this place photograph me but if I have a date or with somebody I'll be like okay that may not be the right time but you can take take photos of me by myself but with other people, I can't guarantee you get their permission, but you always got mine when it comes to just me. 
So if you see like topless or nipple slips or showing genitalia being fully nude, it's because it was all done lawfully and appropriately. So I look forward to that. I look forward to nude photo shoots, you know, photographic art magazines and mainstream sex magazines, you know, doing nude shots of me and nude photographs of myself and with images that are often later redistributed in digital form by the publisher, by third party, I would make most of the money. I'm like, I don't mind that. Just give me most of the money. Like, I get 70, y'all get 30%. I get my 70, that's cool. Now, for like stolen private materials, no one would feel the need to do that to me because I am that open. Why would you steal my stuff and I'm forthcoming about it. If I'm, and because I'll be forthcoming about it, like the first person to be honest about it, then it's pointless to steal something that I already revealed first. So some people, you know, private sexual photographs, celebrities sometimes leaked online. This usually occurs after a hack on itself or an email. For me, that would not happen to me because me and whoever I'm with intimately we would be wise about that and store it in confidential technological devices and um, we would have technology that's hard to hack you know and we would have the right team of people to make sure we don't get hacked so I don't worry about that. Plus, the kind of person I am, you wouldn't want to do that to me because, okay, Antonio's so truthful. I mean, it's not fun to steal from him because Antonio doesn't live his life hiding anything, you know. Photos or videos released online by recipients. These are also sometimes released by a former lover slash spouse. For me, that wouldn't be an issue. And I'll tell you why. Because I wouldn't have a type of lover or spouse that would want to do that to me. I don't fear anything in terms of people I used to sleep with. I'm not afraid of that. I don't sleep with vindictive people and I don't mistreat people. So I'm good to go on that. I really am. Videos of celebrities performing sexual acts are often leaked and are known as celebrity sex tapes. Well, for me, it's like this. I would voluntarily do celebrity sex tapes as long as I get most of the money. Like 70%, 30%. If I can get close to 90 and they get like 10 in terms of just deals in general, sexually, non-sexually, even better. As long as I make most of the money, let it rip. And it will all be ethical. And plus, you know, law enforcement loves me, so they love me because I don't break their laws. So even if, you know, some people try to, they wouldn't succeed because it's like, but Antonio's cool, Antonio's honest, we already know that he likes to have his fun, but he's not a dumbass about it, he's not a shitbag about it. 
the hell is fucking wrong with you for trying to make Antonio look like a sack of shit. In fact, they'll say you're the sack of shit for trying to make Antonio look like a sack of shit. So, doesn't fucking worry me at all. So, fake or doctor photos? Again, I don't mind that happening in terms of skits about me. You know, like Saturday Night Live. Because I'm already in on it. Like, they would tell me, hey, we about to lovingly make fun of you, but we cool with you. And those type of fake or doctor photos are fine. Because I got permission. And plus, I would want to appear on the show so people can see that Antonio was really in on these uh, being made fun of, you know? But because I'm because I'm so honest, you wouldn't want to ruin or try to ruin me. It's impossible because I'm that forthcoming. I I'm that revealing. It's like, how can you try to uh, pick on somebody that is an ex- extremely lovingly honest person? Because I'm extremely loving anyway. So, it's not fun to fuck with me. And um, am I the type of person that would love to do erotic photography, glamour photography, nude photography, nudity in advertising, nudity in print media, nudity in music videos, nudity in American television, nudity in film, body painting, nudity in live performance, nude photography, art, nude modeling, art, nude art, history of nude mo- history of the nude in art. Yes, I'm going to do all the above. What I would love to do, like, new calendar, naked news, nudity in combat, nudity clause, nude psychotherapy. That would be fun for me to do all those things. Like, would I do a uh, naturist resort, um, Christian naturism, nudist resorts, gay naturism, LGBTQI plus naturism? Uh, um, Gymnosophy, Naturist Magazine, Social Nudity Organizations, and Timelines to Social Nudity. Yeah, I would do all those things. Yeah, I would even do, like, honest, I would even do nude beaches. Toplessness, public bathing. Massage, top freedom, lawyerism, exhibitionism. In all the right ways, I would. I would do nude swimming classes, naked yoga, naked parties, naked nude weddings, clothing optional events. These are just all cool for me to do. Yeah, I would do all these things. And of course, I like to conclude with some porn. Would I would would I ever do like hardcore pornography, softcore pornography, and the majority of genres in porn? Yeah. You already know the ones I wouldn't do. I don't need to repeat that, but that would be me. <sighs> so yes, I I am going to do the nude celebrity media. An imagery of a nude of nude celebrities, 
and that will definitely be me.